0: Well, I, I certainly did not run, plan to run, run as a premier. Look, I mean, I never set out to be a politician. I said, no, I'm not interested at all. Anyway, as time went on, I, they kept after me, and uh, eventually I decided, look, maybe I can do more uh, for for the people as premier.
1: I think very often when people get into politics, they're they're quite humble, but at the same time you got to have something in you that makes you believe that you can make a difference. And when someone says to you, you can make a difference, it's like, yeah, I know I can make a difference.
2: I think there's a certain Hail Mary pass that when you know you're in trouble, you try to find somebody who's the same, only different uh, to lead you. But I also think that... um, there may be some people who are less concerned that, you know, that if you're a female and you fail, that that sort of confirms some deep sense that they have that you know maybe women aren't really cut out for this.
3: Hi there. My name is Kate Graham, and this is No Second Chances. Canada has had more than 300 first ministers, meaning a prime minister or premier, and only 12 have been women. This podcast series is a one-of-a-kind opportunity to hear directly from them about what it's like to be a woman in Canada's most senior political role. If you've been tuning in, you know that we're well into the plot now. We started at childhood, transitioned into adulthood and early career experiences, and from there we looked at what prompted these women to dive headfirst into politics. We heard about what life was like in government and in opposition, in the backbenches, and as a minister. And now, well, things are about to heat up. You don't get to become Prime Minister or Premier, without first taking a big, bold step, running for leader. It's a step few Canadian women have ever taken, but these 12 women did. So today we're going to hear all about it in this episode called Stepping into the Ring.
4: I'm here today to announce that I will be a candidate for the leadership of the Progressive Conservative Party.
3: In Canada, elections tend to come around every four years or so. But the same can't be said for leadership races. Sometimes it can be quite a while, even a decade or more, before the opportunity to run for the leadership of one's party, and ultimately one's province, territory, or country comes up. Running in a leadership race is next level politics. For most politicians, they're used to running an election in their own riding, a fairly contained, familiar place. But running in a leadership race means running across an entire province or territory, or the entire country. And it's a very different kind of race, more visible, more expensive, and often more challenging. Instead of running on a set of policies that come from a party, leadership candidates run on their own brand, or on a platform of ideas of where they want their party to go. And the opponents in the race are people in their own party, often their own colleagues. So that can be tough too. And it all starts when opportunity knocks. And people would come up to me and say, when Mulrooney steps down, you're going to be our next leader. That's Kim Campbell. She was first elected as a member of parliament in the 1988 federal election. By 1989, she was a cabinet minister. And Prime Minister Brian Mulroney had just won his second mandate. And I remember saying to Michael, I said, you know, it's kind of embarrassing because,
2: (laughs) you know, know, I don't think the prime minister is going anywhere and I'm not, uh, you know, looking to fill a job in which there isn't a vacancy.
3: Now, this was not the first time the idea of party leadership had come up for Kim Campbell. In fact, she ran for the leadership of a provincial party in British Columbia, the Social Credit Party, in 1986. She came in last. I actually
2: ran for the leadership. And no, I didn't win, but in a way I did win because it really elevated my profile. So I ran for the legislature in the the
3: election that followed and was elected. Flash forward a few years, and Campbell had left her provincial seat, won a federal seat, and was a member of Brian Mulroney's cabinet. In November
2: of 1992, Ray wrote a memo to me of what it would mean to run for the leadership. And he wanted me to be really clear about what was involved and what it would mean. But, well, because there was a lot of discussion about it, but then Ray said, well, the prime minister's meeting with the campaign team. Uh, He he said, if the prime minister meets with the campaign team next week, which was in November, he said he can't step down, he can't create a campaign team and then not be the person who leads the campaign. So he thought for sure that Brian Mulroney would stay.
3: A Gallup poll cited Mulroney's approval ratings at a mere 11%. And in February of 1993, Mulroney announced that he was stepping down. And so, for the first time in about a decade, the leadership opportunity opened up, with an election just a few months away.
2: So there was no time to... For any for success, or whether, no matter who it had been, who, who it had been, to put a new face on the party. What was interesting was that almost two thirds of the caucus supported me. And I, so, again, I mean, how can you not run?
3: Her colleagues supported her. People encouraged her to run. Turns out this is a common thread for most of the women we spoke to. I remember the day that Premier Stelmach
1: stepped down, and we were scheduled to have a cabinet meeting in Calgary. So I was at McDougall Centre, which is the government's office, the pre- premier's office in southern Alberta. That's Alison Redford, reflecting back to
3: the early days of 2011, three years after she was first elected to office.
1: And the premier didn't arrive on the plane from, from Edmonton, and someone said, oh, I think you better listen to the radio. So me and a couple of other cabinet ministers turned on the radio and the premier announced that he was stepping down. And so then we all sort of it, it was a tough time for him and it wasn't unexpected, but we didn't expect it that day. And uh so there were four or five of us who were there for the cabinet meeting and and you know right away the speculation started who's going to run. Everybody left McDougal Center, I you know got in my car and went home. And uh, I remember Ted Morton <laughs> He obviously knew he was going to run, which he never did, walked out the front doors of McDougal Center and started walking along the street. So, of course, all the TV cameras were taking pictures and flashing, and is he or isn't he? And it was like, he so clearly is going to run. And I remember just watching it the way any other citizen would. It was like, oh, I wonder who's going to run. Oh, well, Ted Morton's going to run, and you know, Gary Maher's going to run, and you know, maybe Doug Horner's going to run. And I just kind of watched the whole thing, just like you would or anybody would. Ted, Gary, and Doug didn't seem to have any
3: trouble putting their names forward. But not so much for Allison. It was going to take a little more prompting.
1: And then I got a call from a good friend of mine who was a lawyer in town. And he said, you know, there's a few of us talking about this. And you're you're a long shot. But we've been talking to a couple of, you know, really new modern organizers that aren't the traditional party
4: organizers. And you can win this. Kathleen Wynn shares a rather similar story there had been people who had been talking to me a bit before that um, about whether I would run if he stepped down because there was there was speculation about when he would step ta- step down um, so I'd been thinking about it um, but I hadn't made a final decision decision time came quickly when Premier Dalton McGinty stepped down and when he called us into his uh, into the caucus room that Night at six o'clock in the evening for this bizarre caucus meeting. We didn't know what was going to happen. And the minute he said that he was stepping down, I had to, you know, I had to think about, I had to think very seriously about getting the people around me who were going to help me make the decision.
3: Remember in our earlier episode called Making a Run for It, when we talked about how important it is to ask women to run for office so they'll actually consider doing it? The same thing applies to women when it comes to running for leader, maybe even more so. Just ask Catherine Kalbeck. It was January 1993 when PEI Premier Joe Giz announced his resignation. He was a sitting premier with 28 of 32 legislative seats and an election was on the horizon. At the time, Catherine was in Ottawa sitting as a member of parliament.
0: Well, I I certainly did not run, plan to run, run as a premier. Look, I mean, I never set out to be a politician. You know, that was not in my thinking at all. But... Joe Giz resigned very suddenly, and my phone started to ring in Ottawa. I was then in the House of Commons, and I had a committee all lined up to run in the next election for for the district of Walpack. So I said, No, I'm not interested at all. Anyway, as time went on, they kept after me, and uh, eventually I decided, Look, maybe I can do more. for, for the people as premier that I can as a member of parliament. And so I, uh, I eventually said
3: yes. Okay, so people were asking, but what exactly turned those no's into yeses? Well, um, there were a lot of people in the race,
5: and um, it didn't seem to me like any of them had a chance of winning.
3: That's Christy Clark. For her... Opportunity knocked at a bit of an odd time. Christy had already spent a decade as an elected official, left politics, and was pursuing a career in broadcasting when British Columbia Premier Gordon Campbell stepped down in 2010. She was, let's say, underwhelmed with the slate of candidates
5: who stepped forward. You know, I thought, okay, well, somebody's got to run who can win. And um, there were a bunch of people who felt the same way, and they gave me polls, some of which I'm sure were manufactured. Because that's what people do. Um, And they all said that I had the best chance of winning. Maybe the best chance, but still not a good chance. I knew that it was going to be really tough. My odds were not strong of winning the election, you know, if if it was going to be two years away. But um, I thought, well, you know, in two years as premier, I can make a real difference. And I can show my son that it's worth doing something really hard for public service. That even though it's a sacrifice, we all have an obligation to sacrifice
3: in order to serve the public
5: at some point in our lives.
3: So it wasn't really the prospect of winning that sealed the deal. It was about something bigger. You know,
4: Kathleen Wynne said the same thing. I did not expect to win. I was not the odds-on favourite to win the leadership by a long shot. But there had been people who had come to me and said, you shouldn't run because you can't win. You can't be the premier because you're a lesbian. You won't get elected. Quite apart from what they may have felt about me personally, they felt that I couldn't win. And I, I said to them, you know, that's how homophobia works. It works by keeping people out of positions, not by including everyone in the, in the race. For
3: Kathleen, running for leadership was about more than winning, and it wasn't a decision she made on her
4: own. These are family decisions. They're not individual decisions. They really are family, particularly my partner. I had to know know that she was going to be okay with it because it was another level of profile that even if I didn't win, I was going to be in the public eye to to an even greater degree. Um, And the question she asked me that really... Um, made the decision for me was was she said, you know, how are you going to feel if you're not part of the debate? And that, that was, that was the deciding question for me because I knew that I would be, I would feel very, um, I'd feel disappointed in myself if I didn't at least try to be part of the discussion.
3: Being part of the discussion, that sounds a
1: lot like what Alison Redford had to say maybe it is time, maybe Alberta's ready to actually do what I hoped they would, which wasn't about me, but it was about changing the discussion and and not having, you know, a conservative leadership campaign that was only going to be about who was going to balance the budget the best. We were going to be able to talk about uh, mental health and drug addiction and social supports, LGBTQ rights, uh, you know, electronic voting, Uh modern infrastructure in cities, public transportation, climate, all those things that everybody else in the world was talking about and Alberta wasn't talking about them yet.
3: Paving a path forward. Changing the discussion. Putting new issues on the agenda. Showing what the sacrifice of public service is all about. Getting things done. All of these things can be powerful motivators for women when making the decision to run for leader.
1: Okay, this is is what we need to do. And how are we going to move forward?
3: That's Pat Duncan. For her, the drive to be the leader was about specific things she wanted
1: to accomplish. I was short-term thinking, I think, at that time. I wasn't going, oh, I'm going to become the leader and the premier and the da-da-da. No, I was like, okay, here's the immediate task that has to be done. We need a leader and we got to get through this session and we got to build the party and we got to continue to build the momentum and build towards the next election. And
3: of course, personal circumstances are never an irrelevant part of the story. No one can speak to this more powerfully than Kathy Dunderdale. I wasn't expecting uh,
6: the Premier uh, to resign. Uh, I, I had come to politics with him. Uh, I knew that his intention was to serve two terms. And I thought that I would probably go with him, you know, when his term, when he had served his eight years and was ready to move on, that I would probably be ready to move on as well. Um,
3: Well, That didn't work out.
6: (laughs) No, it didn't. But things changed. You know, um, my husband had been uh, diagnosed uh, with cancer uh, just about a year before I ran for elected office. And he passed away uh, um, when I was about two years in. And so that changed a lot of things for me. And uh, part of uh, surviving that tremendous loss in my life uh, was work. Um, It was a way that, um, for me... Uh, I could escape the grief that surrounded me for so long. Um, You know, I I was back to work uh, within three weeks of Peter passing. And the uh, premier um, asked me to take on a brand new portfolio. And, um, uh, you know, I remember um, not answering the question, but saying, oh, somebody else should do that. and uh, and was clearly told that uh, the premier didn't want anybody else. He wanted me to do that. And I think because of my own particular circumstances at the time, I you know, that I had just gone through one of the worst things that could have ever happened to me in my life, and I was still standing. So nothing was ever going to be worse than that, even failure. I had to begin to chart a new course for myself because of, uh, of you know, the plans that I had been making for years with Peter had now shifted in a way that I never expected. And so now I was on my own, and uh, so I had to forge a, a new path.
3: And when the premier announced his surprise departure, she did exactly that.
6: So I took over as premier, and I, I, I wasn't... Uh, very intimidated by that at that point and I can hear one voice clearly saying in it's our first woman premier I remember a general sense of excitement and uh, I, I remember young girls being excited by it and reaching out to me I was in to running and everything at the time. And I, and I would go early morning for a run before I went to work and so on. And, you know, people knew that. Everybody knows everything. We're a small place, you know? <laughs> it's a, everybody knows everything. And and I remember the, you know, the school bus passing me you as know, so I jogged down the street and, you know, the little ones in the window waving to me, you know, and shouting to me because I knew. And that was, you know, it was wonderful.
3: She went on to run for the leadership, win, and lead her party to a majority government election victory.
6: I mean, I knew how important it was for them to see a woman in this position doing this work. And, and, and for them to understand very clearly in their young lives that this is something I can do.
3: It's a line worth repeating. This is something I can do. At some point, all of these women had to decide whether or not they believed in
1: themselves. And when someone says to you, you can make a difference, it's like, yeah, I know I can make a difference.
5: I can make a real difference. I can do more.
6: I can do this.
3: We need to believe in ourselves. And as Nellie Cornier reminds us, it's not easy to change some of these norms, how we're perceived and how we perceive ourselves, but it can happen over time.
6: I think women have to have more confidence in themselves as a person. I see a lot of women running for political position, and what gets them is that they don't really believe enough that they can be there. You know, when something exists for so long, for centuries, you know, from the woman being clubbed over the head, pulled by her hair, tell her to go and make the fire or something like that, to today. It'll evolve, sure, you know, it'll evolve over time, but it's going to take some time and, and it's taking too long.
3: For women, running in a leadership race can be a powerful way to show that women can lead. The very presence of a woman sends a message that we belong in these discussions. We belong in these roles. It's about something bigger than winning. And it's not that I expected to win. It was important for somebody like me to be running for the leadership. Somebody like me, we heard that a lot. So few women have taken the leap to run for leader and even fewer come through victorious. So we need to celebrate those who do, the people who take the risks, even though they don't fit the mold of the people who've run before them because they blaze the path forward. If we wanna see more women and a greater diversity of women leading in our country, well, we need to see more women running in leadership races. It's that simple. So if opportunity knocks for you, Or someone you know that you'd like to see in a leadership role? Ask her. Support her. Encourage her. And if you are her, well, take it from these women. Maybe it's time to believe it's something you can do. Before we wrap up, I'd be remiss not to comment on the Alberta election from last week. As predicted in the polls, Premier Rachel Notley lost. She was the last woman standing at Canada's First Minister table. And now we're headed into a time with no women leading our territories, provinces, or country. And so, this conversation is more important than ever before. Today you heard about stepping into the ring, running for leadership. All of these women took the leap and won. Their hard work of the leadership campaign is now over, but as they're soon gonna find out, the real work is just beginning. So join us next time for our episode, The Peak, coming out on Monday, April 29th, 2019. And as always, You can subscribe and learn more about this project at nosecondchances.ca. Coming up on No Second Chances.
6: And I remember leaving the cabinet room during that process and just feeling the hand on my shoulder. That's not what you put your hand up for, is it? And I said, I'm so
4: overwhelmed, you know, I don't know what to do. That was a really hard day in my political life um, because... I knew that was going to happen. We we had seen that the numbers were not moving. That you know, I was we weren't going to win, and we were very worried about winning any seats at all. You know, and I just I just couldn't believe that we were that far down. It was just it was devastating. I felt so um,
5: badly though that I didn't carry the whole team across the line. Because one thing I know about politics is, when you're the leader, it's all on your shoulders. It's not, oh, gee, we had a great team, and you know, you either you're the winner, you either win it for everybody, or you lose it for everybody. And we lost it. I mean, we won the election, but we lost the government, and you know, I have, to, I take full responsibility for that.
3: No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020, written and hosted by me, Kate Graham. It's produced by Sarah Turnbull and I, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reynolds. Our music is composed and performed by Meredith Yellenos. Mira Ahmad is the Communications and Operations Manager at Canada 2020, which is led by Executive Director Alex Patterson. This project would not be possible without the support of MasterCard.
6: There, it's Sarah from the 2020 Network, brought to you by Interact. If you like what you heard today and want to find out more about what Canada 2020 is up to, add yourself to our mailing list. That's where we share the details of our upcoming events and initiatives. And if you haven't yet already, subscribe to the 2020 Network. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We've got four awesome shows suited to everyone's unique tastes. To give you a sense of that, over the last few weeks we've heard from blockbuster actor a famous political commentator a ballet dancer an academic an author a journalist yeah you get the gist so go now subscribe rate and review i'll catch you back here next time